0: Father, the last Friday of camp meeting, hard to believe. We're always blessed to be able to be in your presence and to be led by you. And You are kind and merciful to us. You love us. You care about us. You've given us your word as a teacher, and we're so thankful for it because it helps us who are leaders to have direction so we know where to go and what to do. We pray for your wisdom to be here with us through the presence of your Holy Spirit as once again you teach us how to be leaders for you, deacons and deaconesses, leading your churches forward into the kingdom of heaven. The truth is, Lord, in this earth we have troubles, no question about it. And even in the church, there are challenges that we face. As we focus today on how to handle some of those challenges, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be here. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was looking at what to present for the seminars a month and a half, two ago, whenever we did it, when I got down to this particular point, I realized that one of the challenges that elders face is the same challenges that deacons and deaconesses face because they are leaders in the church, and it's one of the areas that we really do need help with, and that is handling two basic challenges in the church. One is conflict, and the other is, there's my book, I'll see it, and the other is discipline. And as we, uh, as I wrestled with that, I realized that there is a close connection, and there should be anyway, between elders, deacons, and deaconesses when it comes to dealing with these problems. Now, we've spoken a little bit about conflict in the basic section, because in In that, we talked about the the role of deacons and deaconesses and the fact that the work of deacons and deaconesses came out of conflict in the church. And that tells us that that's the responsibility then for us as deacons and deaconesses to learn how to manage that and help the church to be able to sort through those things and work through them without them becoming bogging down experiences that bring the church to a halt and take it away from its mission and its purpose. You and I are given that work that we talked about yesterday, and that's the work that God wants us to do, and we must do it. The challenge that we have today is that, the, and I've always had in the church, but especially today in these last days, just before Jesus comes, is the devil is bringing everything to bear now that he can. Anything and everything that you've heard of, and things that you haven't, the devil is now bringing to bear because he is trying to push in against us to try to destroy God's church before Jesus returns. That means that his leaders are going to have to be even better equipped, better prepared, and more dependent on Jesus than they've ever been. If you read the news today, I mean, I'm reading things I never, ever, ever, ever even imagined. Uh, When we're dealing with the LGBT agenda, you know, I can almost, uh, for the recording and for everybody else, please raise your right hand what you're about to say. (laughs) You recognize what I'm saying is not saying what somebody might take and say in this recording, so it's right here. If I need you to defend me because somebody gets it and puts it there, whatever, I could almost stomach LGBT. Now, let me explain what I mean, spiritually speaking. I'm not talking about the people. I'm talking about the theology. I'm talking about the doctrine. I could almost handle that. But when you begin to see where the agenda is really going, and what I've been reading recently in the news has just absolutely floored me. The agenda of the devil is abundantly clear. He is actually trying to destroy the whole idea of gender. This isn't just about homosexuality anymore. You can now tell exactly what Satan is trying to do. He's trying to take away, obliterate the image of God entirely. God says in Genesis chapter uh, 1 and 2 that he made man and woman in his image. And what Satan is trying to do now is destroy that there ever was a man and there ever was a woman. Because if he can do that, he can destroy the image of God. You and I are, I mean, I didn't see that coming. I don't know, anybody here see that coming? I couldn't believe it when I read it, when I started to see what people's agenda was. And they, that, that agenda is actually out there, that's where they're going. I shouldn't have been surprised, and you know, almost nothing surprises me anymore. But this is not a last day events class. This is a deacon and deaconess's class, and we've got some challenges that we face. But the subject that I just spoke to is not the only challenge you're going to face in your churches. You're going to face that, and you're going to face things you've never heard of, and I haven't heard of yet, and we're going to have to be prepared to work together to solve those problems, and to keep God's church together as as we wrestle through with them. And so both the elders and deacons and deaconesses are going to have to struggle with the issues of discipline and dealing with conflict in the church. So I want to take some time to talk to you about discipline and about conflict and give you some ideas and tools to work with. I'm not going to solve the problem for you. I'm going to give you ideas and introduce you to potential tools and solutions, but this is going to be an ongoing struggle in your church. But... You will go away with two things today. One will be overwhelming, and that is I'm placing again on your shoulders the responsibility for leading your church when it comes to dealing with these issues. Not to walk away from them, not to ignore them. After the elders class, I had some people talking to me about the conflicts and the challenges that they're experiencing, the difficulties that they're having to handle, and they want to know how to manage that. God's going to help you how to deal with it. And I'm willing to come to you or talk to you on the phone, talk to your churches, talk to your leaders, talk to your districts, whatever, to help you begin to work toward managing this. But the bottom line is please don't ignore the challenges your churches are facing. Don't run from them. Don't be scared of them because Jesus is bigger than those things. You remember Caleb? What did Caleb say? He said, I'm not afraid of the Anakim. I'm not afraid of them. We can take them. Most of the people ran, turned tail and ran and spent 40 years in the wilderness. But we're back at the promised land again and they came back to the promised land and Caleb proved it was true. He went right back into the place that God had given him. The Anakim were still there and he took them out. Why? Because God took them out. He just went in there for the ride. Caleb said, piece of cake here. I don't even need this sword. And you know, you don't really see much of that fight going on. Because God just took it over. All He waited for was faith. Right. All right, I feel a sermon coming on, so I want to talk to you a little bit about church standards and move us along here in relationship to this. Um, because God is holy and righteousness, His church has set high standards of moral and social behavior that reflect the character of God. Do we serve God? Yes. Is God high and holy? Yes. Did God create us in His image? Is God seeking to bring us back into His image? He's got work to do and that will finally be finished when we get to heaven, but He's teaching us to be dependent upon Him. Satan wants to lower that image. We already talked about that. He wants to lower all of that. He wants to lower the standards. He wants to cause us to think that by being, that we're being kind and generous and caring about people by lowering the standards of God's church. At a time when God says, no, 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 no. We, we're just on the borders of the, king, of the kingdom here. We're at Kadesh Barnea. We're almost in the promised land. Don't lower the standard now. Keep it up there. I'm strong enough to help you with that. These standards are based upon biblical principles which are eternal and unchanging. God is eternal and unchanging, Right? Every person baptized into the church promises to follow these standards. You have been. How many of you have been baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church? See your hands? Good, because if you're a deacon or a deaconess in the church, I sure hope so. I'm not going to tell you I've never seen that happen, but it does happen. When you were baptized, you took vows. You didn't just make promises, but they were promises. You took vows. And the vows were to be obedient to those standards, those Thirteen things that are listed there, and and whatever, right? When you take that kind of a vow and that kind of a statement, if you were in a court of law, would the court expect you to obey what you said you were going to do? Yes or no? Yes. So when I stand before God and say I accept those things in my life and I vow that I'm going to do those things, recognizing it's under the strength and the power and the and the uh, Uh, the faith that I have in Jesus that that's possible, but nonetheless I'm vowing that I'm going to give my life to Jesus and allow Him to do these things in my life, then if I choose not to do that, am I keeping my vows or breaking them? If I'm breaking my vows, can God help me and take me into the kingdom of heaven while I'm breaking my vows? Because He's high and holy and it's His standard. If I choose to renege on my vows and walk away from Him, what I'm saying is I don't need you anymore, Jesus. You're not strong enough in my life to be able to give me power in my life. When somebody's working in, uh, on Sabbath instead of trusting the Lord that they can walk away from that job and He'll give them another one or, or, or put money in their bank, do uh, whatever He feels He needs to do, it's a lack of faith and a lack of trust. Am I right? So when I'm talking about this subject here, I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about salvation by works. I'm talking about the fact that we need to learn to trust God to do what God said he would do. And we need to trust him to make us into the people that God said he would make us into. This is God's plan for us. This is what he wants to accomplish for us. Every person that was baptized took that vow. And so when you as a leader in the church... Go away from you for just a moment, but go to the people that you might have to lead into issues Or deal with in relationship to issues of of discipline. You're going to be dealing with people who have taken that vow before God. You shouldn't be ashamed to say, look, you said you would be faithful to God when it comes to baptism. You said you would be faithful to God when it comes to uh, staying with your spouse and, and being married. You said you were going to be faithful to God when you said you weren't going to smoke or take drugs. You said you were going to be faithful to God when you said that you would return faithful tithes and offerings. You said, you said, you said, You understand? So why should you be ashamed to come to them and say, all we're asking you to do is keep your promise. I can't do it. I can't do it. No, we didn't say you could, but Jesus can. So keep it in that context here. Realize where God is and where God's seeking to lead His people. Does the church have to correct a member who has seriously broken God's law? Put it in the context of what I just told you. How does the church treat members who are not living up to its high standards? By saying you're a bad person, go away, get out? We need to look at that, and that's what I want to talk about today. What are the steps toward correcting the wrongs of members? When and how should the church discipline its members? When and That's a duplicate. Whether saved or unsaved, God's love is the same for all people. If a person is, is having a struggle in their lives and they're having trouble with robbing banks, they just can't quit robbing banks, are you going to go to them and say, you know, I know you're struggling with robbing banks. I just want you to know we love you. Have a good day. No, All right? No. I know all the law ramifications of that. I'm talking about the sheriff showing up and saying, you knew they were robbing banks and you didn't turn them in. What I'm saying is, I'm using an extreme example for the very reason that it just takes the heat off of it. You put it in all the more personal and more intimate laws and the other kinds of things, and you begin to realize that we can't just ignore that. But a person who's struggling with with robbing banks, is that person loved by God or not? That person is loved by God. Jesus died for that person. Did Jesus die for Judas? Yeah. Yeah. Was Jude, Jesus heartbroken when Judas hanged himself? Yeah. You bet it was, because he died for that man. He died for Judas, but that didn't mean that he could save Judas, because Judas had a right to choose to do what he what he did, exactly. and in essence, he was robbing banks. He took money. Whenever the church needs to take action concerning a member who has fallen into sin, let each one of us be reminded that Jesus gave his life for that erring member just as much as he gave it for us. Let's keep the value of a soul clearly in our hearts and minds. It is right to be indignant about sin, but it is wrong for us not to love the sinner. And to deal with the sin is to deal with the sinner and when we do, we have to keep that in the context of the fact that this is a soul for whom Jesus died. But that doesn't mean that we don't get serious about it. Jesus was serious about it with the people that he worked with. Ellen White says in Volume 7 of the Testimonies, Human beings are Christ's property, purchased by him at an infinite price. How careful, then, should we be in dealing with one another? So Christ is asking us to be careful how we deal with each other and how we handle the issues of working with people. Now, I should tell you that what I'm talking about today is not talked about quite as heavily in, this, uh, in that book, but dealing with issues and problems and so on is, and I'm going to look at that in just a moment. Great. Thank you so much, Elijah. Just put it right there on the floor for me. I was going to ask, does this correspond to that? It does. It does, and I'll come to it in a moment. Exactly. Great. So thank you for asking, and and it it does. We'll come to it in a moment. So just stay with me with this part, and then I'll connect it in the book so that you get those pieces. So Ellen White also says, if wrongs are apparent among his people, and if the servants of God pass on an in indifferent, on indifferent to them, they virtually sustain and justify the sinner, and are alike guilty and will just as surely receive the displeasure of God, for they will be made responsible for the sins of the guilty. Is Ellen White making that up, or is there a biblical precedent for that? What does Ezekiel say about the watchman on the wall? He reminds us, he says, if we go to the erring one, and we, as the watchman on the wall, say, look, you can't keep doing this, and we get the sinner to turn and go the other way, we have not only saved that person, but we have saved our own souls. But if we go to a person, and we say, you can't live that way, it's destroying you. And that person says, forget it, I like my lifestyle, I'm continuing to go on. Ezekiel says, you have delivered your soul even if that person dies. God is helping us to understand that we have a very serious responsibility We don't think corporately as much as we need to, and I don't want to get too far into that. But the church is responsible for what it does with people. And we as individual leaders fall into this category if we say, I can't do that, I'm not strong enough, I don't have the courage enough to do it. Jesus doesn't say, well, I'm sorry you didn't have enough courage, it's okay, we'll go on. Where's the source of courage? Where's the source of help if you, if you know you should not be working on Sabbath and so you quit your job? Where's the source of courage when you come up against something that you know you can't handle on your own? You can't, you're afraid to turn in your tithe because you don't know where the money is coming from, but you turn it in anyway. Where's your source of strength? Jesus. Jesus is your source of strength. So if you're lacking courage, then exercise the faith in Jesus and say, Lord, I know this is the duty that you've given to me. But I believe that one of the reasons that some of our elders, deacons, and deaconesses struggle with this issue, because they haven't really taken it seriously yet. They haven't perhaps reminded themselves of these kinds of statements. They haven't reminded themselves of what Ezekiel says. And they forget that God's dead serious about this. You notice I'm a little bit more somber today. Some of you will say, well, you're always that way, (laughs) Royce. But the truth of the matter is we should be dead serious about this. Because people's lives are at stake. I'm not talking about their physical lives. I'm talking about eternal spiritual lives are at stake. God holds the sinner accountable, but also the one who doesn't uh, work with the situation and recognize that the displeasure of God is upon that individual and upon the church for that situation, and they will be made responsible for the sins of the guilty. You and I need to have that clear perspective in our mind when it comes to the issue of sin in the church. Sin cannot be ignored in the congregation. While gentleness, love, and mercy must be shown to the members who have fallen into sin, the church has a responsibility to take action concerning that sin. If you have somebody in your church who's being unfaithful to their husband or their wife, and especially if they're leaders in the church, but whether they are or not is not the point, but they're being unfaithful to their, their spouse, and you know about it, and you do nothing about it, then the responsibility for what's going on with that situation and the impact that it's going to have on the church and everybody else is going to fall upon you for not seeking to deal with that issue and help those people. Some of the most tragic comments that I get from people are people that come from churches and say, because the church didn't deal with this situation, such and such has happened to my young person who saw it going on, and they don't trust the church anymore. We talk about the reasons why young people are leaving the church, and I'm sure that some of them are, some of the issues that are raised, but the children, young people of our church are not leaving our church today because we're not entertaining them enough. Some of the young people in our church are leaving the church because the church that used to stand up for right and preach the truth is wishy-washy and Laodicean and no longer does it. The church today, I've heard this about, you know, they talk about millennials. I only have so much faith in that issue. Every generation has been slightly different, but Jesus never changes. Every generation has been slightly different, but God's standards have never changed. And I'm told that the millennials today have a lot of different things, but one of the things they expect is genuine uh, honesty and genuine Christianity when it comes to Christianity. And if we aren't going to be honest and genuine and, and really live up to what we believe and deal with the issues that need to be handled, then we are not living up to what God is expecting from us. Gentleness, kindness, and mercy can be present when you are dealing with sin, but it is not correctly, God's source is not the source of gentleness, love, and mercy when we ignore sin. That's indulgence. Christ's method is what I want to share with you now. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about something that I I wish I had time to teach you in a whole seminar. And that seminar is something called redemptive discipline. The real emphasis here is that Discipline should be redemptive, all right? For a lot of people, discipline is punitive. In other words, so-and-so is not being faithful to their husband or their wife. So we're going to bring them before the church because that action offends me. She's my friend, and her husband is, is running around on her, so I'm going to punish him by bringing him before the church and so that he can, she can get... You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. That's not the purpose of discipline. The purpose of discipline is to redeem. Because of the value of a soul, God wants us to work to save people. If there's a marriage that's in trouble, the goal is to save the marriage. Ellen White tells us that a happy home is a wonderful example to the community of Jesus and his love. Satan is trying to destroy that example if he can, right? So our goal is to try to save that marriage for the sake of the people, for the sake of the children, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the community. That's what God is asking us to do. So our goal is to redeem and to try to save and to bring that about. I'll give you an illustration on that in just a moment. So when we're trying to redeem, we want to follow God's way of dealing with problems, not man's way of dealing. Man's way is arrest them, throw them in jail, see if they violated the law, give them a trial. If they violated it, throw them back in jail and leave them for a while until they've served their punishment out. That's man's way of dealing with problems. That's not God's way of dealing with problems. Okay? God has a plan, He has a purpose, and He has a way of dealing with that situation. So I want to give you some of those methods and some of those steps now, and that's what you see up on the screen. Question? If you resolve that problem, you make it a tighter church, tighter in faith and everything else, because they and you work together to build that faith stronger and tighter. Exactly. You want to build the church, not see it destroyed. There are times when you have to take action. We'll deal with that. But let me give you a few steps here, and it will come clear. Matthew chapter 18. How many of you understand and have studied the principles of Matthew 18? And you know what I'm talking about when I say that. Okay? Some of you have, some of you haven't. All right, I've got my Bible here somewhere. Matthew 18. Let's uh, look at it just very briefly. Take your Bibles. Open to Matthew 18. Be reminded of the steps that uh, Jesus outlined here. I'm starting with verse 15, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. And we're looking here for four basic steps that are outlined in this passage. So make note of those steps and, uh, and we'll try to do identify them here for you. Verse 15, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell it to all your friends so that... Is that what it says? Okay, some of you are not looking at the Bible, so you're not sure what I said. Dangerous, dangerous. (laughs) Anyway, it's all right. You didn't all bring your Bibles. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, right? If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So what's the first step? Talk to that person first. Don't even take it to the elder or the pastor. Our usual practice today is we read this as, if your brother sins against you, go and tell the pastor quickly before it gets any worse. Okay? That's not what Matthew 18 says. Verse 16 says, But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So step number two is to do what? Go back again because they didn't respond to your first direction, your first counsel, your first encouragement. So you take two or three others with you and you go and you work with them and try to see if they'll listen now. Then it says in verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So now the second step is to go with two or three. The third step is to go to the... The fourth step is to remove them out of the church and try to win them back. Right? Right? Because when you treat them as a publican and a tax collector, you try to save publicans and tax collectors, right? So there are four steps. One, go to them alone. Number two, two or three people. Number three, take it to the church. All of those with the purpose of redeeming them, of saving them, of stopping them from continuing in their sin and moving in that direction. Step number four is they won't listen. They refuse to do it. They continue to work on the Sabbath. They continue to have an affair. They continue to rob banks, they, whatever. And so you finally say, look, we've done everything we can. I'm sorry we're going to have to tell you that we're going to take away your church membership. That should be the very last resort, but it doesn't mean it's a non-resort. It is something that God expects us to do in carrying that forward. When the church has done all it can to reclaim erring members without success, Jesus says they should then be considered as outside the church. Disfellowship members or those removed from membership, as the church manual puts it, they also use disfellowship, but removing from church membership should not, however, be removed from the church's love, prayers, and concern. The challenge that we have today is that we baptize people, and as soon as we baptize them, we forget about them. Mistake number one, we don't disciple them like we should. Mistake number two is that when people have trouble, we bring them in, we discipline, if we do that at all, discipline them and then we ignore them. The church should be all about caring about people when they come into the church and when they have to leave the church. We should continue to care about them and love them as souls for whom Jesus died because they are souls for whom Jesus died. Church discipline. Disfellowshipping should be carefully considered. It's an extreme action which may be taken only when every other action to reclaim them has been attempted. And there's some instructions in the church manual. You should all get a church manual. If you don't have the new one, and most of you don't, be sure to get one before you leave. Up in the ABC, the new ones are there, and I hope they have enough. The uh, 2015 edition. Yeah, I did, and I got mine too, by the way. I went up there, so thank you. Are you sure? Yeah, that's the point. Okay, let me just make sure. I wanted to double-check, and that's why I asked that. I went looking for it. Last time, they put the 2010 edition, which was from the previous general conference in 2010, they put that one up electronically before they put it out in print. This time, they decided to put it out in print, and then sometime later, they'll put it up on electronically because they weren't selling the hard copies. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, we can understand that logic. You, logic. you print them all, and then you get stuck with a warehouse full of hard copies because everybody's using them electronically. So they printed them out, because you never know how many people are going to buy. And so you print them out, and you wait until you sell them. Then you make it available electronically so everybody can have it. And so the one that is up there, there is one. But I think if you look carefully, you'll find it's the 2010 edition. Okay? If it's the 2015 edition, I'll rejoice. But you need an hard copy anyway, so you can mark it up. All right, let's go to the next uh, quotation here from Volume 7 of the Testimonies again. When it comes to actually integrating and and dealing with discipline, no church officer should advise, no committee should recommend, nor should any church vote that the name of a wrongdoer shall be removed from the church books until the instruction given by Christ has been faithfully followed. We do some interesting things in our churches. There are times when we do need to go in and look at the church books and ask some questions. But once in a while, we'll go into the church books and we'll clean the church books. And when people really make a mistake is when they go in and say, we haven't seen that person and I don't know how long, take their name off. And then they start down that road. That's not the process the church manual outlines at all. Or we know this person's gone off and is living with somebody else or whatever. That doesn't give you a right to just disfellowship them without a process. Jesus says there's a process, and we need to follow that process, and we should not take any vote until we have followed that process. Love and mercy should guide all of our actions in dealing with those who make mistakes. Many feel it is their duty to root out sin in the church. God has not given that duty to us. Let me explain to you what the difference is between that and discipline. It is not our job to go... sneaking around, trying to figure out where the sin is. Ah, I found one. Oh, good. Let's go to the church now and let's take care of it. That's not God's job for us. As deacons and deaconesses, our job is to, when these issues become apparent and we know we have to deal with them, to then go to that person to try to redeem them and try to work that through. You're not just trying to to, to get sin out of the church. You're trying to save the sinner. Sometimes our goal is actually to get the sinner out of the church, and that's not the goal. That's not the goal. But once in a while, the sinner has to go when they won't let go of the sin. The presence of the pastor is essential. The reason that's in here is because if you're in a situation where you're in between pastors, you need to rely upon the conference to help you through that process. Your church does not have authority authority to deal with discipline without the presence of an ordained minister dealing with that issue. If you are going to disfellowship from someone from your church and the pastor is not there or someone from the conference is not there, it's an illegal action. And if I found out about it or Elder Gallimore found out about it or whatever, we'd come to the church and say, we're sorry, but you did not have the authority to do what you did. And uh, so it's real easy to call us and we come and help you with it, that's all. No individual member has the authority to disfellowship another. In other words, nobody can get up and say, Oh, I don't like Brother Jones anymore. I would like to disfellowship Brother Jones today. And the church has to do that. That's not how that works. The church board does not have that authority. The church board may process the information and take it as a recommendation to the church and business session, but only the church in a regularly called business meeting has the authority to do that. That's the only way that can be done. I'm just quoting to you from the church manual and the process there. So let's back up for a moment and let's make this part of it really clear. Church discipline is a process. It's not an event. It is something where you're working for the redemption of, a, of an individual. You're seeking to save them for the kingdom of heaven. You, see, you want to save them also for the church and for God's witness in that community. There's a lot of reasons to redeem that person. And that's a process that you want to go through in working this all through. It's not just somewhere, sometime, where you're getting them out of the church and removing them from the church. So you work through that process until you get to the point where there's no other step that you can take And it's obvious this person has no idea and wanting to deal with it. And, you know, the truth is there's sometimes when you really hardly get past step one, as far as the church is concerned in Matthew 18. Because one person may go there and that's the only person that person will talk to. And then says, look, don't send anybody else here. I have no interest. And maybe two or three go and try and connect, and and that person won't answer the door, won't answer emails, won't answer the phone, won't do whatever. And eventually, you have to just say, we've tried everything. They won't even talk to us. And at that point, you've gone just as far as you can. But you still have a process of letter writing and working through that process to be able to establish the fact. I've had to deal with cases where somebody said, I was disfellowshipped from the church, but nobody ever told me. Well, that shouldn't happen that way because if you disfellowship somebody from the church, you should have an address where they're from. There's a way to deal with people that you don't have addresses for that are missing, and it's a separate category in the church. Uh, clerks uh, uh, and e-Adventists today, it's a separate category. But if you're disfellowshipping somebody for apostasy, there's a process that you should be following. You should be doing exactly what's outlined in the uh, situation here. And then you, if, if you disfellowship them, when you finally have to go through that painful process and the church in business session votes that then the pastor and the clerk should be sending a letter registered mail with a return receipt requested and you send that to that person and you send it off to them and they should sign that and receive it now if it comes back to you and whatever and uh, or the person doesn't turn the receipt back in and, and, and all but gets the letter you've done everything you can that's the bottom line but what I don't like to hear is that I got disfellowshipped and nobody told me about it, and I had no, and I was living right there, and they, and I they knew about it, and they didn't ever tell me. I bet you never. On this, we had a situation where a young man was baptized in the church. After he graduated from high school, he joined the military, and he's making a career in his military, and he has not been back home in almost twenty years. That is not. A reason to take him off the books, I don't believe. No, That's not. Well, the question came up when somebody asked, should they try to find him and find out if he wants to be taken off the books? The answer is yes. You should. So the question was, young man grows up in the church, joins the military, goes off in the military, hasn't been back to that church in 20 years, what should the church do? And the answer to that question is, they should do everything they can to find that young man. Now, if there happens to be family of, of his still there, go and try to locate him. Uh, obviously, you now you've got a resource. But if it's not there, we all got all kinds of resources today. We've got the Internet. And you can track people down better than you. You ever tried to track yourself down on the Internet? It's pretty scary how quickly you can find yourself. So the next time you're missing and you can't figure out what you're supposed to be doing, go to the Internet and you'll say, Ooh, it's scary, folks. That people know where you are. They can just look it up right now and drive straight to you. Just like that. All right, that's a whole other issue. But the fact of the matter is we should take care of every opportunity we have to try to find that person. If we are not able to track them down for whatever reason, we're not able to find them and do all of that, then there's an action that we can take and that is to put them down as missing. And the idea of missing is essentially, and it's a great idea, I think it's good. We used to have to either disfellowship the missing or leave them on the church books. Today what we do is we put them in a holding tank. <laughs> okay, or a holding pattern. Pardon me? The government doesn't Oh yeah, it probably does. Should if he was in the military and uh, but anyway they they are simply in that that pattern known as missing and if they get found they can come back in if that if they say yes i've always been in the church but i just didn't realize or i was i was in africa serving as a missionary i don't know how that would happen but anyway it could have or i i was in africa doing whatever and i came back to the church and so there are all kinds of things that can happen with that so those are the categories now there used to be three categories by which you left the church death apostasy and moving and now, therefore, missing is another one, and that's how that process is handled. Okay, is everybody pretty clear on that part of it? Okay, I've got an illustration and a suggestion for you. See how we're doing here, huh? I'm ahead of schedule, Jim. <laughs> yeah, I keep gloating in that, and we'll still be in trouble. Here's my suggestion for you. Now, you are deacons and deaconesses, so my suggestion is not so much for you as it is for your church. And I hope you will follow this with me. Elder Gallimore teaches a class called Redemptive Discipline. He, um, I've sat in his class a number of times, and because of my responsibilities and my role, I went to Elder Gallimore and said, do you mind if I teach this class? I think our pastors really, and church members, really need to have this class and need to learn how to do that. And I would be happy to come and help your church with it. I've helped churches with it. And I, from what I've been able to tell, it's been very helpful to them. Because when people think that discipline is punitive, they resist it. And I say, actually, good, because it's not that. But when in the redemptive discipline process, Elder Gallimore's class, he's the one who outlined it, we teach the fact that Matthew 18 is the basis upon which we deal with it. And then we start working through the process with people with the goal of seeking to redeem them. We talk about the difference between punitive justice and and redemptive justice and all those kinds of things. We just go through that whole process. But there's one thing I want you to take back with you to think about. If it happens to be that some elders of yours or an elder of yours was uh, present in the meeting this morning, they got this. But if not, take it back even to your, your pastor. Your pastor may be aware of it, may not, but this is what the suggestion is, that the board of elders be given the opportunity to work with people that are struggling with a problem. I used the illustration, a marriage illustration this morning. This afternoon, I'm going to use a smoking illustration. Let's just say that as a deacon or a nurse, you are going out one day and you find that a person is um, in a restaurant. You see a person who's a member of your church. Maybe he's one of the elders in the church. Nah, let's not go there. That gets too complicated with my example. It's a Sabbath school superintendent. And um, you realize that uh, you watch that superintendent, and you, the superintendent, uh, because it's a restaurant, can't smoke in Michigan inside, but outside you see them light up and, and light a cigarette and walk away. And you say, Hey, wait a minute. Isn't that Brother Jones, the Sabbath school superintendent? Did I just see what I think I saw? And you kind of catch yourself and you work through that process. What's your first step? Because he was smoking. It was him and he was smoking. What's your first step? Go and talk to him alone, right? That's your first step. Your goal is to do what? Get him to come back. Get him to redeem that situation. Stop smoking, whatever. He may be standing up there every Sabbath morning, smoking outside and teaching Sabbath school and Sabbath morning in front of your church. It's happened. A lot of places it's happened. So your goal is to redeem that person. So you go and talk to him, and the person says, you know, I've struggled with smoking for a while, but I just can't overcome it, and I'm sorry, i am really tried, and um, I'd like to la- ask you to leave me alone. Now you've got a choice. Leave him alone and ignore it, and let this person go on with that struggle, or realize that that person's got a problem and needs help. So the next step is to do what? Take two or three people with you. Now, my suggestion, this is a good time to start looking at an elder. It could be the pastor or it could be an elder. But let's say it's an elder in your church. And so you take the issue to the elder in your church and you say, you know, I've discovered this issue. I've gone and talked to them. Nobody else knows about it. To my knowledge, nobody in the church knows that Brother Jones has this problem with smoking. And so you take it to the elder and the elder says, well, let's go and talk to him. So you go and you talk to him. The two of you talk to him. And Brother Jones says, I'm sorry, I, I told you I'm really struggling. This, I really wish you'd leave this thing alone. And, um, and so you say, okay, but you know, we can't just leave it alone, Brother Jones. This is a real problem for you in your life. Make him aware of the consequences. And rea- help him to realize that this, the eternal consequences are the most important and that there are some consequences even within the church. We can't just ignore it. And the elder could, at that particular point, could do something. Now, it's, a, it's even less complicated if I tell you that it's an elder that sees the person do it. But because you're deacons and deaconesses and not elders, I had to use you in that example that way, except for those of you who are elders. Okay? But at any rate, so you, the elder takes it to the board of elders. And when the board of elders gets the word that this person, Brother Jones, does not want to deal with this issue and is not handling it, the board of elders says, okay, we're going to... We're going to try to work with him a little bit more and see what we can do. And the board of elders says, all right, we're going to send you a couple elders along with one more time. And we're going to tell him we're going to give him a period of grace of three months. And during that period of grace, we're going to suggest to him that He just tells the church at the moment that he needs to take a break from being a Sabbath school superintendent. He doesn't have to have an explanation for that. He just needs to take a break from being a Sabbath school superintendent, and we're going to work with him on the side to help him to overcome his problem of smoking. We're not going to take it to the church, and we're not going to tell anybody else about that. Now, let me tell you that if he had listened to you as the deacon or deaconess in the first place, you would not have had to tell anybody else about it. If he said, I want to overcome smoking and I want help with it, please help me. You can get resources. My suggestion is one of two things. Go to the pastor or go to somebody else outside of your church circle who can help you help that person to stop smoking. If you don't have the tools, the resources or the experience to be able to do it. If you can help that man stop smoking, you have solved the problem and you don't have to go to the church with anything else because your goal is to get him to stop smoking or punish him? Stop smoking. That's your goal because redemption is the goal. You want him to stop smoking. But if it's not working, the board of elders can put this individual under a period of grace. But it still keeps this whole situation contained. It doesn't go to the church and business session or it doesn't go to the church board, which then the church board has no choice but to eventually take it to the church and business session and deal with it. It doesn't have to be done that way. It can be kept contained. If the guy says, man, you guys are really serious. You really even want to help me with this. I want the help. Okay, okay. I, I, I tell you, I've, I've been struggling and I want the help. And I've been scared to ask for help. And I thought that the church would condemn me, but you're not condemning you, me. You, you're actually trying to help me. Okay, I'll, I'll take the help. Then he gets the help and he stops smoking. Problem solved? Problem solved. It didn't have to go to the church board. It didn't have to go to those peers along that way and his church fellow church members who never ever knew that he struggled with the problem of smoking and that God gave him the victory. And when the time is right, he may make the decision that he needs to take an action. He might even choose to be re-baptized. He may even say why. That's up to him at that point. But you've redeemed him. you redeemed him for the church and you've been able to keep that process going. That is redemptive discipline. If he chooses not to and eventually gets to the church board and the church and business meeting, so be it. All right, this process is not spoken of in the church manual, but it's in keeping with the Spirit because the Spirit says, do everything, the manual says, do everything you can and following Christ's method to solve this problem. But don't just go back to your church and start doing it. There's a process by which you should get that process okayed in your church. First of all, I go to the church board. I wouldn't wait till there's a problem. I go back right now, and I would say, look, let's establish this in our church. And some people will not accept it. And, and they may have questions about it and say, I don't think you can do that. And then you call us, and we'll tell them how that all works through. But you say, tell the church board about what they could do. Are they willing to establish the board of elders and give them the authority to establish a period of grace if a person falls uh, into sin and has a challenge. That way it keeps contained and you can deal with it. Then you take it to the business meeting. If the church board agrees and is willing to make a recommendation to the church in business session, you take it to the business meeting, get the whole church together and you say, this is what we'd like to do. Then the church votes that and accepts that, and it's a legitimate process to be able to be worked with there, and they accept that. It's in the keeping with the spirit of the church manual. It's not destroying that and going somewhere, but it gives you a chance to be able to work with that situation and help that person. So that's the encouragement that I'm giving to you in relationship to that issue. Okay? Yes, please. uh, maybe perhaps putting together a specific... Bible study with that person. Mm-hmm. Maybe, that's what that, would, maybe that's one of the things the elders would do. Absolutely, it all involves all of that, and I'm glad you brought it up, Take actually, it because in my in my rush to go through here, I'm not dealing with every step along the way. But let's be deliberate so that it is clear. Right. You're taking that person back to their personal relationship with Jesus, and they're struggling with this because they, you know, a person who's smoking is not having a regular devotional time. With Jesus. I mean, not mostly anyway. And they're, they're, they're struggling in their relationship. They need to be brought back to Jesus, back to the Word of God, back to that foundation. If necessary, because it's some kind of an area that they're arguing about relative to the, to the spirit of prophecy or whatever, take them there and, ha- and help them to see what the counsel is and so on and so forth. Yeah, good if I point. Good if but I, If I think I'm having a problem, I reread the baptismal. That's right. That's right. That reminds them, right, right there. of their vows. Yep. With the verses. <laughs> okay, so I've done a couple of things here. I've helped you understand the process, understand how to work through it. I've given you a little bit of an example of how you might process this, how you might work through it. Now my challenge is to you is to don't ignore sin in your church and allow God to continue to work with you I'm about to transition into conflict. I saw a hand here, and then I want to move into that. Uh, just not sure what, what is different in this and yeah. kind of, what's in the The difference then in terms of it is that the church manual does not talk about a period of grace under the authority of the church elders. Okay? okay? This is kind of a voluntary process that it's outlining here. Mm-hmm. Now, if a person refuses to, to accept this period of grace. And, and take those steps in their, in their life. You know, if they're struggling in their marriage, they need to step out of the, whatever leadership role they have and concentrate what's, on what's most important there. They, you don't need to advertise that for everybody, but they just need the break to be able to do that. That's just a step there. But the church board can also have a period of grace. But it, and it's, I think the church manual speaks about that, but it's also called a time of censure. But it's an official time and it's brought to a broader group and that is the church in business session. And this is trying to prevent it becoming general knowledge so that it can be contained. Okay? What about the modesty uh, uh, of the Bible? I know that it's, it's a hard thing to do. The way really they want to dress, anywhere, in any way they want, at any time. Let me speak generally to the question, okay? The question in my mind, and for the recording, the question was, what about dealing with issues of dress, and you specifically mentioned short dresses and so on and so forth. We don't generally discipline people for wearing short dresses, but we, if people are going to wear jewelry all the time, and that becomes a problem, we would work with them on that level and eventually it could reach that particular point. But my, my, my caution with you in all of these cases, I don't care what the issue is, but all of that, is a good, solid process. And by the way, deacons, you should never go to a woman and tell her her dress is too short. It's not, your, it's not your place to be doing that, okay? A deaconess can go to a woman and tell her her dress is too short, Okay? And that's one of the issues there. You want women to work with women and men to work with men. That's a process. We have that issue here on this campground, and we always deal with it. We say we need a a mother in Israel who will go and help some of our kids who don't seem to get that, uh, that whole principle yet right now and kind of work through that because it is an important issue. So trust me, I'm not downplaying that issue. Okay? I'm telling you all of these kinds of issues need us to work together. But some don't lead as quickly to discipline as others do. If you're robbing banks, I'm probably going to expedite the process of discipline with you. If you're breaking the Sabbath, I'm probably going to expedite that with you. If you're wearing a short dress, I'm going to work with a deaconess to try to work with that situation and help you to understand the spiritual ramifications of that issue and why Ellen White talks about uh, the kind of dress that Christians should be wearing and so on and work with that individual on that particular level. Okay, I'm going to keep going. I, I, I've got to do this in order to get into the next section, and this is one of the dangers of, of doing that. I've taken a couple of examples. Now I need to move into uh, to conflict. If I get into conflict and get... <laughs> if I get through the subject of conflict and there's enough time, I'll take some other observations. So write it down so that if we have time, that you can bring it up, but let me move on with the next section. Take your books and turn to page 85, if you would, please. In my mind... The issues of discipline and conflict come in under the category of problems and nurturing the membership. This is on page 85 in your book, and we're dealing again with deacons and deaconesses. And when you look at the first paragraph of that that chapter, the author says it has been established that the deacons of the first century Christian church ministered to the members of that, uh, the members that joined the church by solving problems and nurturing them. Therefore, the implication is that the deacons and deaconesses of the Seventh day Adventist Church in the 21st century must be involved in preparing the church to welcome new members into its ranks and, excuse me, and nurture them. That's God's expectation of us. Go into the next paragraph. Ellen White states that stated that God's Spirit convicts sinners of the truth and he places them in the arms of the church. The ministers may do their part, but they can never perform the work that the church should do. God requires his church to nurse those who are young in the faith and experience. So as you go in through this chapter, we're dealing with two basic areas of solving problems and nurturing the church. If you go over to page 88 and look at um, where it says 2C, it says, the deacons of the... F- oh, seats I wrote that down on mine, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Second full paragraph, okay? The deacons of the first century Christian church were able to re- pre- reach, teach, I'm sorry, the... Word of God, they were also calm and had discernment. Therefore, the third implication is that deacons and deaconesses of the Seventh-day Adventist Church must be qualified to instruct others in the Word of God, have self-control, and be able to reason from cause to effect. The point in this is that our deacons and deaconesses should be people who are not just capable of filling the baptistry with water but they can also be capable of ministering to the spiritual needs of people. Now, trust me, you can fill the baptistry. You can also minister to the spiritual needs of people. I know that's the case, and that's what God's trying to get us to to identify. So on page 89, there's a list of things here that are brought up, and not all of them are there, but it says the following are functions which ordinarily are primarily focused upon ministry to the church's own people and illustrate the kinds of things that they they might encompass. Visiting the sick and poor. Caring for the parish's poor. Coordinated program for visiting and integrating. Visiting prospects for entering the church. Instructing adults in these various areas here of baptism before they join the church, etc., etc., etc. Six, teach the children of the church. uh, Seven, lead small Bible studies. Eight, organize and head groups. Nine, train uh, acolytes or altar servers. Uh, Now that happens to come from a non-Adventist source. It says they're adapted for Adventists to establish and train youth to serve as junior deacons and deaconesses is what they're trying to say. What it's doing is it's listing a lot of different things here and there's some adaptions for Adventists. But the the point that I'm making is the kinds of problems that you have to deal with are conflicts between people or between church members as groups or whatever, and also issues of discipline. They all come into that category, and you all should be working with them. And you should be working cooperatively with elders in working through this process. All right, I'm going to take you through some quick steps, and then I'll share that illustration out of uh, the book that uh, Kathy uh, brought to us. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some of the steps here. First of all, seeking the lost. That is your goal. You're seeking the lost. Same principles we use in relationship to the other issue of discipline. And so I'm going to skip over that because we're dealing with the same kind of thing. Christ's method and dealing with that. But when it comes to resolving conflict, one of the things we want our church members to learn is the principle of forgiveness. A lot of conflicts come about when people get mad at each other. And if the problems last long enough, they don't even remember what they were mad about. I had a problem in one of my churches where some siblings got mad at each other and by the time I got there it had been I don't know how many years and you know what, they could not even remember what they were mad about. At that particular point they only remembered one thing, they were mad. And that's where time comes when it's time to consider forgiveness, right? God is leading us to that. Now there are some tools that exist in the church to help Bring about resolution of conflict. Communion should not just be something where people are drinking grape juice and eating bread. It should be a time of opportunity for people that have conflicts with each other to resolve those conflicts and put them behind them. That's what the foot washing service is all about. When the communion service was first given in the Lord's Supper, the disciples were at each other's throats. They wanted to be in power in the church and they were angry at each other because some of them were figuring out a way to get ahead of it. Well, Jesus was all over that, and he knew he had to help his disciples with that process. We should be using that as one of the tools that God has given, and we need to teach our church members how to uh, incorporate that. The intervention of church leaders. Well, you are church leaders. In some cases, the conflict is bigger than you are, and the pastor needs to be involved. In other cases, it's bigger than you, the church, and the pastor, and the conference needs to be involved. I hope it's never big enough that somewhere in the union they have to get involved, but that has happened, unfortunately. So these conflicts need to have sources of revolution, and there are steps and tools that will help you with that process. There's also the church manual that talks about ways that you can work to bring about conflict resolution and to work through those problems. Ellen White says, Christians should make every effort to avoid tendencies that would divide them and bring dishonor to their cause. It is the purpose of God that his children shall blend in unity. Do they not expect to live together in the same heaven? Those who refuse to work in harmony greatly dishonor God. Our churches are dishonoring God when you are in conflict. And if the church continues to allow itself to be in conflict, they continue to dishonor God. So the church at some point has to say, enough already. We're here to honor God. Let's come together in prayer and fasting and ask God to find a solution to this conflict that's between our brother or sister or, or all of us. And sometimes it's over-discipline. You better not discipline my daughter if you disfellowship my daughter for having 30 kids out of wedlock. Then you're, gonna, you're not going to be my church anymore. Yada, yada, yada. Please. Those kinds of conflicts are very real. Some of you are going through those kinds of conflicts. And they can be really challenging, but it doesn't bring honor to God as you walk through those kinds of situations. And I'm not making fun of those kinds of situations because they're really serious. And they're really painful in the local church. Ellen White says again in the uh, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 59, If matters of difficulty between brethren were not laid open before others, but frankly spoken of between themselves and the spirit of Christian love, how much evil might be prevented, how many roots of bitterness whereby many are defiled would be destroyed, and how closely and tenderly might the followers of Christ be united in His love. God wants to help us to help our churches, help our members, in some cases to help help ourselves be able to figure out a solution. Just a reminder that um, Ted came to, uh, to Ken Sand because he uh, had a problem with a supervisor. His name was Joan. And um uh, it seemed like the situation got worse and it was and that Ted was contributing to the problem by some of his own actions and, and Joan wasn't taking to it too well and it was a conflict. So he came to, uh, to, to uh, Ken Sand and asked for help and, it, uh, and he said, just to back up here for a moment, by the time Ted came to see me, he had returned to work and the lawsuit was moving slowly through the court system. Um... And then he told him, he uh, he said, During our first conversation, Ted and I identified several ways he had contributed to the conflict with Jones. Seeing his own fault more clearly, Ted began to consider settling the lawsuit by accepting the $5,000 the agency had offered him a few days earlier, and so on. And then uh, they went through that. A few days later, Ted surprised me by saying that he was going to drop his lawsuit without accepting the, without accepting the settlement offer. The more he had reflected on his own fault in the matter, the less comfortable he felt about accepting the money from the agency. At the same time, he had concluded that laying down his right to restitution would be an effective way to demonstrate the mercy and forgiveness that he himself had received from God. Now, that's where I left you, right? The next morning, Ted went to talk to Joan. He admitted that he had been disrespectful, arrogant, and rude and he asked for her forgiveness. Joan seemed suspicious of his motives and said a little in response. Ted went on to explain that he had forgiven her for ordering him to move the heavy boxes and that he was dropping his lawsuit. Finally, he said, he hoped that they could start over in their relationship and learn to work together in the future. More suspicious than ever. <laughs> we are that way, aren't we? I probably would be. Joan asked why he was doing this. He replied, I became a Christian a year ago, and God is slowly helping me to face up to a lot of my faults, including those that contributed to the problems between you and me. God has also shown me that his love and forgiveness for me is absolutely free and that I can do nothing to earn or deserve it. Since he has done that for me, I decided I want to act the same way toward you. Amazed by his answer, Joan mumbled something like, Oh, I see. Well, let's let bygones be bygones. Thanks for coming in. Although Joan's response wasn't quite what Ted had hoped for, he walked out of her office knowing that God had forgiven him and that he had at least given Joan a glimpse of that forgiveness. Ted soon discovered that Joan was telling others about their meeting. Is that good or bad? No, 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 that's good. Hang on, hang on. The next day, a union representative who had heartily supported the lawsuit against Joan confronted Ted and asked whether he had really dropped his lawsuit. When Ted said yes, the man asked, Is it true that you did it because you became a Christian? Ted again said yes, and the man's scowl turned to a look of puzzlement. As the man walked away, Ted heard him say to a bystander, Well, that's the first time I've ever seen a Christian's faith cost him anything. Like ripples in a pond, word of Ted's actions spread throughout the department. A few days later, two co-workers asked to meet with him over lunch once a week to discuss the Bible. Later, other co-workers asked him questions about his faith. For the first time since Ted's conversion, he felt he was really helping people to learn about God's love. Although Joan continued to treat Ted rudely at times, he learned to submit to her authority and use her provocations as further opportunities to show God's work in his life. When she was replaced a few months later, there was no doubt in Ted's mind who had arranged for him to have a more pleasant and supportive boss. Three years later, I asked Ted whether he regretted his decision to give up the settlement. No, he replied. That was the best $5,000 I ever spent. God used those events to bring several people to Christ. He also helped him, helped me to overcome some major sins in my life. I only wish I had settled it more quickly. Amen. Isn't it time we start teaching our people that solving conflicts is God's way rather than man's way? it might actually lead to the conversion of our own people and people in our communities. So, my brothers and sisters, as deacons and deaconesses, or elders as the case may be, or spies in our midst trying to search out whether you want to be any of those things, I will say to you this. God has given you a great opportunity as being leaders in His church. You live in the last days, and the tools that He's given you are for the purpose of finishing God's work. Some of those tools are not easy to use. I don't find a jackhammer easy to use, but there's a time when you have to use one in order to deal with a problem. But always use the right tool for the right reason, and the most important reason is redemption of people in their lives, and God will lead you forward. So take the tools we've given you from Monday till now, those of you who've been brave enough to stay in the class all the way through, and on your knees, and at times in in prayer and fasting, ask God to help you to move your church on from where it is now to where He wants it to be, and that is to enter the promised land, the heavenly Canaan land that we're just about to walk into. Let's pray together. Father in heaven thank you for being with us during our time of study and fellowship and learning together. Lord none of us are naive to think that by just talking about these problems and their solutions that the problems will go away. But we are of faith enough to believe that we if we place our faith in you and trust in you that you will help us to work through these problems and solve these problems that you'll help us not to ignore sin, but to help people to deal with sin in faith in you and get the victory over those sins, to deal with conflicts, which is also sin, and to find ways of resolving those conflicts. I pray, Father, that you will give your Holy Spirit an abundance and might and power to each one in this room and that you will help them to be instruments of your peace and your strength and to be disciples that are faithful to you in winning souls